Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Welcome to another special edition of Bigfoot and the Bunny for the Paranormal UK Radio Network. And this week we talked to Gail Heisen and her husband David for a little while as well about being the subject of parapsychology experiments and uh, testing and this sort of thing. Um, among other topics, including uh, shamanism and uh, a whole host of things that kind of run the gamut, um, this was a super interesting interview. And if you're not familiar with uh, people, you know, involved in parapsychology, um, it is kind of like the science that goes out and tries to prove paranormal events. And, you know, in recent times, meaning our lifetimes, uh, very common names that come up are people like Dean Radin and Hal Putoff and uh, Russell Targ. And um, Gail knows these people uh on a like an intimate level like they call her up and stuff and uh, she has some just amazing stories we talked about a variety of things that uh ran from just hilarious to uh heartwarming and touching and uh this was this was a great interview uh we know you guys are gonna love this let us know what you think reach out to us at bigfoot and a bunny at gmail.com and uh let us know all right without further ado here is the interview Welcome to Bigfoot and the Bunny. This is a couple's journey into the mysterious, the unknown, and, and the, the paranormal. paranormal. I'm your host, Chris Carr. And I'm your host, Kristen Johnson. Together, Together we, we are Bigfoot and, and the, the Bunny. Bunny. And we're live. Welcome to Bigfoot and the Bunny. Happy Saturday, folks. I am Chris Carr. And I'm Kristen Johnson. And uh, we have a really great show for you. Uh, we did want to mention last week um, with our show with Cody Ray, uh, Despians, and Satari Haas, we heard an awful lot of voices and yeah. things through the recording. 
And uh, normally when we stream live, just due to our software, we notice there's a, an inherent hiss. But this was beyond this. I, I was hearing voices like in my ear, and you can see that we're, we're going signaling each this. other. Like, do you hear that? Do you hear that? Man, right in my ear. Yeah. And uh, even our audience heard uh, what appeared to be, you know, electronic even voice phenomena right out there while they were talking and they were having things going on there and and uh, it was really cool we had a fun, great time talking to them but the really curious part is to take the recording that gets made when we do the stream and turn it into a podcast mm -hmm. and um all those voices all those evps i expected to be you know clipping out of the live stream weren't there nope so um yeah, we went through the whole thing at Nothing. least in the uh, software's recording of that. Uh, some of it we know was like streamed live mm. to people and they heard it because our audience heard it. Uh, and if you're out there, we, we know you heard stuff where hey, we were talking about yes. um, I love Liza the doll. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I was hearing like like voices like very clearly uh, seemed to be coming from, from this side while they had noise on their side. None of it was on there. So that's that's most peculiar. And uh, if you want to check that out, you can find that wherever you're watching us in the archives, uh, Bigfoot and a Bunny. And that was uh, Cody Ray, Despians, and Satari Haas. Uh, fun couple. Paranormal and, couple. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that museum that they are running is definitely haunted. There was something oh. going on. They were broadcasting from within Their the haunted museum. museum. So there were all sorts of haunted, haunted objects around them at the time. Uh, most particular. And I'd, I'd love to get out and see that. But uh, this week, we're going to be talking um, about psi research and uh, parapsychology and some really cool things. Uh, shamanism. And I said that right this time. You did. I've been saying shaman. Sorry. So sh shaman on me <laughs> for doing that. And uh, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, but we have uh, Gail Heisen is on with us. Mm -hmm. And uh, we... I think we got to move that up a little bit. Maybe. I think so. I'm hmm. sorry. Hey, For decades, comments. Gail has been the subject and contributor to scientists in the paranormal and psi research field. She has led an unconventional life and found herself accepted into other cultures by just being herself. Uh, Gail Heisen is going to discuss her work with, with shamans, practice, healings, remote viewing, dreams that help solve mysteries. And we'll talk about what it was like uh, in particular. I think we're going to start with this to be a test subject um, for scientific research in the field of metaphysics. So let's bring her on. Welcome, Gail. Hi. How are you? Good, thanks so much for having me, Kristen Kristen. It's good to be here. You're Thank very you. welcome. Thank you for joining us. So I just wanna get into this real quick. What was it like to be a remote viewer? Well, I, I heard all the different topics that we're going to discuss, and we might need three shows to tell all the stories I have for all these different things. So I thought, we, if, if it's all right with you, I was going to invite my husband in, and we'd actually start at the root of how all this really began and how I actually got introduced to all these amazing people that I've worked with for the last 23 years. So here's my husband, David Levitt. Hello. Just David. chair on in. <laughs> How are you doing? Great. 
good to be on. I think we let off with the wrong question. <laughs> I have, I didn't know, but I just thought I want to see that show with the paranormal couple. We're not the paranormal couple, but we are the couple. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are a lot of couples in the paranormal. You know, um, it's not a new thing. Uh, that's just how they advertise themselves, and they have a haunted museum. And, oh, you know. where is that museum? We're a paranormal couple as well, so. Sure, they go back through history. That's wonderful. Better together. I don't know what it is. We've talked a lot about that. Like uh, chemistry. It, it seems like there's a chemistry or an energy when you get mm -hmm. the yin yang and people that care about each other. Mm -hmm. More things seem to happen. Well, we thought that it'd be fun to share this story together since we're both part of the story. And instead of me playing both voices, we can each be ourselves. <laughs> That's wonderful. <laughs> So we're going to start with how we met because we think that's sort of a magical story in itself. Awesome. Okay. Yes, please do. Back in 1960. 60, back, in, back in 1967, uh, we were starting junior high school in Flushing. New York. And um, actually, my first psychic experience with Gail happened, I was 10 and a half. I was already less mature and two years younger than all the other seventh graders. And um, he was a childhood genius. He was two years younger than us. We were all in the gifted program. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. And, I, and there was this very pretty blonde girl. And I remembered liking where I was seated because I could ogle her from afar and not be noticed. Not only that, I happened to be someone who didn't wear a bra, which because that was that was the era at the time, 1957. And I'd wear these shirts that when I lifted up and raised my hand, I realized now all these young guys were seeing my boobs, but I didn't realize that back then. <laughs> but I, I wasn't a fee angle for seeing that. I just loved the way she laughed and talked, and I was just enjoying it and literally thinking, uh, it's so nice that I can enjoy it incognito. And she looked across the classroom and said, David Levitt? Did you want to kiss me? <laughs> <laughs> I'm ten and a half, and I, but I said, but I yes, and I actually crossed the room and kissed her. Oh and, wow! And, oh wow! And, uh, and so that was my first introduction to psychic ability. <laughs> <laughs> wow, uh, that's great. So we're gonna have to fast forward a few times. We were we were friends for the next three years in school because junior high school was three years in New York. She was buddies with my big sister, and his mother was my algebra teacher. So oh, it was wow. sort of a family affair in a certain way. Family <laughs> oriented. Yes, and we were, and you know, I was going out with guys that were like eighteen years old at the time. So I just thought he was this sweet little guy, and we were both the same height. We, I mean, I'm under five feet, and he was under five feet then with an afro. And that was the last time I saw him was when we graduated junior high school. And I, I wrote him some letters in camp, and that was it. We never spoke to each other since. So I um, so fast forward a couple of times, and, and I went to Bronx High School of Science and happened to be teaching at NYU in 1993 for, uh, when an ex-girlfriend was helping organize the 20th year science reunion. And I wasn't sure where I was going, and um, but I went and uh, and I didn't. I was talking with people, and there was still our friend Terry. And I said, "Oh, Terry!" For some reason, I said, "So, whatever happened to Gail Schneider?" And she said, "Oh, um, she's uh, she's she's living in Northern California. She's uh, she's 
She's had a couple of successful businesses, a couple of kids. I said, ah, she's married. She's, and she looked me in the eye and said, she's a free spirit. You should, you should call her. And um, sure enough, she was separated. I got on the phone with her twice that summer. And we were on for four hours at a time, I think. It was the summer of 93. And my niece was here. And I go to sleep early. So she comes up at 1030 to wake me up to say there's a phone call from New York. Uh, David Levitt, and I hadn't spoken to him in almost 20 years, yeah. and it was just like, oh, hi, David, how are you? Like, we had not had 20 wow. years in between. It was, it's, it's fun. It's a real family feeling. Uh, it's, uh... So he said to me on the phone, I'm going to be coming to California, to Palo Alto. I have a job at a company called Interval Research, funded by the billionaire Paul Allen. Should, you, should we get together and have lunch when I get there? And I said, sure. And we met at, uh, at, at the Palace of Fine Arts in San Francisco. I came in my beautiful Porsche 928S, glowing in the most gorgeous maroon color you can imagine. He didn't even notice it. <laughs> he was distracted by my white overalls. And my, my afro wasn't as big, but I was the panther farmer or something. Right, and we were much thinner then. <laughs> But we had what turned out to be a 12-hour date, and we never came apart. Never came apart since that day. That's so sweet. I love that. That's a beautiful story. So that was 1993. So this Mm. now propels us into his job, where he's working at this company, Interval Research. Very unusual company with uh, various somewhat, you know, by default secret projects aimed at doing things in the advanced future, some more speculative than others, and maybe the most speculative one was being done by Dean Rayton and uh, visiting scientist Russell Targ. It's called the Phenom Project. And they were looking for, well, I'll let you tell the story. And and Dick Schaub, who invented green screen technology, uh, had invited them in uh, to the company. And it was, you know, it was about reaching for who knew what in some cases, being able to take big risks, things that might pan out in 10 years. Um, so uh, at the Monday meetings, they asked if anybody, since it was semi-secret and they wanted to keep things in-house, is there someone who has a family member who seems to be psychic? And I said, well, the other day, I, yes. <laughs> and in fact, just the other day, um, my wife woke up and said, I was having the strangest dream that uh, our housekeeper's son was vomiting and the phone rings within seconds and the housekeeper says, I can't come in today. My son is, is vomiting. Oh, wow. And I'm like, oh, this is <laughs> this, this is still going on. <laughs> this is, and she has this. And I said, yeah. She said, you, you may get used to this. This happens to me all the time. And it does. And sometimes they're helpful like that or innocuous like that. And sometimes they're they're life and death things that she knows and couldn't say how. Oh, wait, tell about the blonde in the hot tub. That was a good one. <laughs> <laughs> happening. And I don't really, have, I don't socialize that much, but I happen to be with my brother. Uh, and uh, and I was with some, more than one blonde in a hot tub, one in particular. And I check in with Gail and she says, are you with a blonde in a hot tub? <laughs> and it's a good thing we don't try to keep secrets because it would really be ugly. <laughs> no sense in it. No sense in it at all. That's great. Oh, that, that's amazing. But I'm also very helpful when he's late for a meeting to Palo Alto and 
because we was commuting. I haven't up even here. told her. I'm looking for something, and she'll walk in and hand it to me. No, I was drove away from the house, and I get to the stop sign. I say, "Oh my God, David's got a problem. I got to turn around and come back." I turn around, I come back to the house, and he's got this important meeting and a two-hour drive ahead. And I walk in and I say, "What's the matter? There was something wrong." He said, "I can't find my keys for the car." And I just walk over. I don't even look with my eyes, and I just bend down and pick up the keys and I mean, give them. What are they them. doing on the floor? Where she, she knows somehow knows exactly where they are. So it was very, so I'm helpful sometimes also. <laughs> well, always usually helpful, especially life and death. I I don't know if Gail agrees with this, but it's almost like she's. You, do you ever see the Woody Allen movie Zelig, where he becomes what people? He, he can be. He can look like the person he's with. She doesn't look like anybody and doesn't turn into anybody. But if someone says, "I need to find my mother," she says, "She, she says where?" Oh, I've only done one of those. <laughs> you should tell them if there's time. Well, yeah, we could go there. But so I want to get out to how we met Dean Radin and Russell. So, so, so I said. So I told the story at the Monday meeting, and I said, "I think we want to interview your wife." Um, yeah, have, have, you know, and while you're at it, why don't you jot down, you know, the best, because she's known among her nieces as Psychic Auntie Gail. <laughs> and, and, and this is, you know, this is not a secret within the family that she, she has these, these gnarly powers. Gnarly, I love it. Right. <laughs> you talk about people some perspective, too. And when you mentioned Dean Radin, he's the uh, chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences. Yes. For those who don't know. Um, he's written numerous books, and I, and I knew you were featured uh, in one of those uh, pretty extensively on parapsychology. And he's like, you know, one of the first people you think of when you think of parapsychology is certainly Dean and Russell Targ, and Russell Targ. from the Stargate Project. Um, you know, those of you who have seen Men Who Stare at Goats and you know, <laughs> all that, <laughs> and the remote viewing project that the military did for years and years. Um, the hey, them, yourself, get into other things that maybe aren't as well-known, like green screen technology. Right, there was a really diverse group there at Interval of, you know, everything from psychologists to artists to, it was really a totally unique uh, little utopia there funded that way. Um, but anyway, uh, so well, they said, bring her in next week and uh, let, let her make some notes. So immediately our nieces say, well, you can't forget this story. You can't forget that story. And one of them makes up a, 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 the first psychic anti-gale document. And we realized that she has about three dozen of these stories. Well, the, the thing was, I think I was in my early 40s when they had me do this. And I had never thought or listed all the psychic experiences I'd had in my life because I just live them and they're just part of me. And I don't do things like charge money to people or say, you know, if I have a feeling about them or like people want a reading, I don't do that sort of thing. But if I'm with them and stuff comes up for me or if I have a dream and I need to tell them, that's when I'll communicate any of that information to them. So this was a, a whole new avenue what they were asking me to do. I'd sort of just been living my psychic life, never thought about organizing it in a list. <laughs> but it was very fun to see. The niece, I think, did most of that version. And it was just like, this is a long freaking list. This is really an exciting set of stories. So she tries to tell them these stories in the well, 45 minutes that we were scheduled to talk with. We talked for two, over two hours. And they, were, and they were just enraptured. And they said, why didn't we record this? Are you going to write a book? Those were the first two things they said. So it was really their encouragement that 
was the foundation that this a small medium at large book got got written and uh it was a very great encouraging it was great encouragement from them because i felt they weren't one of my friends they weren't some family member because i'd always been told by people just the unusual life i've led they've always said oh you should write a book oh you should write a book but people just say that you don't really think they mean it but when two scientists tell you we don't even know you i said i could write this book one <laughs> so she started coming in for Russell's experiments and a couple of different kinds of experiments. Um, but I'll let her, I mean. <laughs> Precognitive remote viewing. I didn't even know, I didn't know this existed, nor did I know the term remote viewing. I didn't know any of these things. They just asked me to come in and I, I, I they had an office but David had a, a fairly um, larger office with carpet on the floor. So I would lay on the floor and I would do what Russell asked. And I had just met him and he'd say, well, it's one o'clock now, Gail. At three o'clock, a computer is going to select one of 300 National, National Geographic type photos of places in the world. And we want you to draw what the computer's gonna pick in two hours. First of all, I didn't know I could draw anything from that's a, that a computer is going to pick. Second of all, I didn't know I could draw into the future. And third, I didn't know I could come up with such detail when he asked me to do these things and the pictures would start arriving in my head and I would lay there on the floor and I'd start drawing these. I'm a terrible drawer. I, I, I cannot draw at all. So it's really stick figure and kindergarten type drawing. So I often write what it is so the person know that that's a rock or that's a that's a waterfall, you know? I do the same thing because I'm such a bad drawer. Oh, <laughs> they have to know what that is. So I did not know that I could do this. And then he'd come back with the drawing and show me that I was drawing something that wasn't even selected. So in my 23 years of doing, you know, different scientific experiments with them, I do what they ask to do. But on my own, I'm learning things about myself that I didn't know I operated at, or that I didn't know I could do that. And and their experiments have shown me things I didn't know I was capable of doing that way, like seeing a picture two hours ahead before. That hadn't even been determined yet. Right. Yeah, and that is an amazing thing about remote viewing. It could mm -hmm. be a coin flip. It could be somebody else needs to tell somebody else to decide to pick whatever it's gonna be, or maybe a binary computer, you know, with the S's and no's comes back and tells you what the, what the actual target ends up being, right? And it hasn't been determined. Local time is, 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 not even, uh, is not an obstacle. And Russell will do this all, all the time. He just not, he's, he'll just be calling about something or other, and he'll say, Gail, what am I holding in my hand? Oh, he just asked me to do that today. In fact, I'm going to plug in. He called me a couple weeks ago and asked me what was in his hand. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm going to <laughs> I said to him, oh, it's this bright, colorful item that it would remind me of if you were holding sparklers when you were a kid and you had a whole handful and sparklers were going and the lights, the colors were flashing off into the sky like that and sparklers. Sure. And he said to me, you're 99.9% .9 correct. He said, I'm going to send you it in the mail. He didn't even show me what it was. And I think it was a computer scientist who made this. One of, well, employee number five from Apple actually made this. It's a friend of Russell's and mine. So I'll show you what it is. So I'm describing him this, this thing of bright colors. 
And mm. this was the thing he was holding in his hand. Oh, oh wow. my gosh. And uh, so, you are listening, yeah. this is a box with a, electronics in it. It has an array. It looks like, I don't know, about 50 LEDs on it. And they're all lighting up, lighting up and kind of sparkly looking. Right. And you would hold it in your hand just like a, a sparkler. <laughs> so Russell's loves playing that trick. And he knows Gail is going to deliver. It's the oddest thing, I have to say. And something about the gentle pressure um, of, 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 of expecting her to have an answer. He asked me to do one this morning, and I said, I'm, too, I'm getting ready for a radio show. <laughs> <laughs> but you should, but, uh, maybe you should tell about that, um, about that bag. Oh, that's a that's a good that's a that's a that's a good story. But there was a story I wanted to tell before we finished, which was um, uh, about the end of the remote viewing and the interview. Um, what happened following that? Oh, the twenty trials. I wanted to talk about the first experiments that I did with Russell and Dean because we had a diff a little difficulty problem that I had with it. And I didn't find out the answer until Ed May, who is also very big in the field here. You, you've heard of Ed May. And he was judging all the work. And the experiment would be completed after I did 20 trials. And we did them once every Tuesday. So I was writing things down that were not in the pictures when they would come up. And they would be cars and people and boats. And it would come up in the picture with the heaven. And I'd say, God, I really saw that. I can't believe there isn't a boat there. Or I'd say, in that one, there was, there was a person standing here. Well, when I met with Ed May after he judged my work, I found out that, in fact, those were things that had been in the photos, but Ed had erased them out because they found that it was distracting for remote viewers if they added people, cars, and boats. So you would just see like the river or you would see the, the, the road or something, but we wouldn't see those other elements in it. But I was seeing the elements in it, but thinking each week that they were not there. Wow. And in the end, I found out they had been there. And had been removed. And right. removed. You were seeing the thing that you couldn't see. Exactly. Yeah, well, that's interesting. That's so I thought that was interesting. And I didn't get that answer till months later because we were doing, you know, four, it took a few months to complete the 20 trials. Anyway, I just had to throw that story. <laughs> we got lots of comments from our audience. People love, love your story. Um, and see here, we got one. Anita Allen says, we used to play a game guessing uh, the Hershey Kisses a wrapped wrapper color. You know, they come in different colors, right? So uh -huh. that guys with color blindness can have color blindness issues and psychic visualization as well. So I, I guess can tell you I can tell you a story about color blindness. Sure. Are you, are you ready? Yeah. I don't know what happened here. I did this thing. So well, you can show and hide this uh, chat. chat thing. Yeah, we have to hide that. So let's see. I've had, I have unusual psychic experiences with people that I just meet and I don't know them. Mm -hmm. And this was a gentleman who came and worked at our house doing construction for me. And for some reason, every day that he would work, I would know intimate things about his life and things that had happened to him. And so this continued going on and he was someone who'd never had any psychic experiences of anything in his life. So when I would tell him these things, he'd be in shock. 
So one day he was off the coast here. We live in Northern California and he was abalone diving. And all of a sudden I was here in my house and all of a sudden I had this whole vision like I was under the ocean. I didn't know he was abalone diving, but I saw him diving under the ocean and being completely like entangled in this whole seaweed thing. And something bad happened where the water came in and it's like a very dangerous thing, which is something I want to point out is that often when I pick up something about someone, it could be at a moment when they're having some kind of dangerous thing happening. Those are, it's just like when they talk about the beacon of light when you're doing a remote viewing, what you're ever trying to hide is what the person's going to see. It's the same in getting psychic messages from people when they're at a very uh, frightening or scary thing somehow that message is stronger than some of the fun messages, like when they're having a fun time, don't come like it does if they're in, they're in danger. Kind of so I'm, feeling this man, I'm feeling this man in terrible danger and I'm looking around and then I say to myself, this is so strange. Why is everything gray and brown? I would think if I'm diving under the ocean, I'm gonna see some colorful things down here and all I'm seeing is gray and brown. And then I see he's safe, he's gonna be okay. He gets out of the thing and gets out in time with his air and all that. And when I tell him the story, when he comes to work the next day, his mouth hangs open saying, yes, I was at the ocean. Yes, I was stuck in, in seaweed. And yes, I'm colorblind. I only see in brown and gray. Oh my God. Oh, goodness. wow. <laughs> so you truly saw it from his eyes. And that, yeah. that's a fascinating point. Like that you it, could see it from the way he saw it. So. There's, there's a connection there between our mental state, their mental state, their, your target. Maybe you can elaborate on that. What do you think, is, what is the science behind that? Why do you think that happens? Well, I can't see myself on the screen, so I can't tell I, where I am. But fluent with this app. No. <laughs> okay. Um, there we go. Uh, so... I'm sorry. What say the question again? I was asking about why you think that is. Like, if you are seeing oh. uh, through the target's eyes, yeah. instead of seeing maybe just the the reality of the Around. situation, or as you would see it, or your eyes would right. perceive it, you're I, seeing that as his eyes perceived it. I um, can't tell uh, you why it happens or how. I can just tell you that for some reason, some, it was not the first time I experienced where I feel I'm looking through the other person's eyes. I, there's sometimes where I feel like I'm reading their mind. There's sometimes where I felt like I've dreamt with another person where we both had a dream together called a shared dreaming. So like I'm not, uh, I don't specialize in one particular thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I have lots of different, you know, like a, a potpourri of different experiences. Right. You, you try to make theories about these things. You know, it's funny because I'm a I'm an MIT nerd and I'm a natural skeptic. You know, oh. in our community, when people ask what sign I, we are, we say stop. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, it's, it's not it's not my normal vocabulary. And here is this very very perplexing person where I would have to ignore a lot of evidence in order to not believe that she has this snarly power. And it's very, and there's people, you know, there's the pendulettes who just become professional skeptics and ignore evidence and discount evidence. And I'm not like that because that doesn't feel honest. Um, well, when we, was, we got together and we were sleeping together and we were all romantic, 
somewhere when we were in, the, in bed, I turned to Dave and I said, I just have to tell you this ahead of time, but once I start having sex with someone and we get involved, I said, funny things are going to happen and I'm just going to know things. And I said, I just want to tell you ahead of time. It's just hard for me to explain it, but it's what's going to happen because we're going to become entangled together. But I, but I was saying, you try and make theories about these things. Like you asked a great question about are you reading the minds or the events? And her life is in a way a potpourri of experiments in this area. I'm thinking of Esther's mom. Right. That was one when I was trying to figure out whether I was... I was doing, when I was 15 years old, I was doing um, medical diagnosis in this group called Mind Dynamics. And I had been trained, I guess, to be a remote viewer uh, by Werner Earhart, who was very big in the, he was the man who founded this EST and was very big in this self-help movements. And he also helped fund Russell. Right, he paid $50,000. He, he donated $50,000 to the Stanford Research on uh, the investigation into psychic phenomena back Long in those years. And I hadn't met Russell yet, so I thought it was very funny. The person who taught me how to do this was also the person that gave him $50,000, but we ended up meeting later. So they would have me do all sorts of different um, things. And I would have, I would be told the name, the age, the year, and the city where a person resided. But the person wouldn't be there in the room just the card with the information and what was wrong with physically with the person. This was only strictly medical. And I had a natural talent for this right away. I was able to do it within the first day of the course when you're really supposed to do it on the fourth day. So at 15 years old, I'd sit there with all these adults, 150 people in a room, and we would be doing these practices of these cases, they called them. So all my friends and other people asked me to do this for them, just like you do sort of a reading. And I questioned then, was I reading people's minds and they were holding the card and that was how I was getting the information. I really didn't know where it was coming from. So my old girlfriend, Esther, that I grew up with since we were five and we're still friends today, I was doing her mother. And when I was doing the case and I'm looking at her body in my little workshop in my mind, and I say to her, I think it was an arm. Are you talking to the mother? No, I'm talking to Esther and I'm saying, I'm looking at your mother's body in my mind and I'm seeing that she had a broken arm. And Esther said to me, no, my mother never had a broken arm. So she went back and told the mother all the different health things I had said. And her mother said, oh yes, before you were born, when, you know, before I had your children, I had broken my arm. Wow. wow. So that was when I knew I wasn't reading the call. Cause I, the questions you're asking me, I've asked myself, but I, I'm not a scientist and I don't have an exact definite answer for all these things. I, just no, I, I know nobody really knows the answer to that, but I just know, have my experience. Phenomena, how you feel about it. Say that again. Um, since you've experienced this phenomena, I just was asking how you feel about it. Mm. I realized there were, Nobody knows all the answers to all these things, like why, but it, it does seem to uh, bring about a certain connectedness, right, between people, right. like how we're kind of all kind of connected. How, you know, when you think about how uh, telepathy or um, remote viewing could possibly work, there has to be some kind of connection between people. Absolutely, that isn't visible to the naked eye. Energy frequency. Uh, speaking about seeing through the eyes, when Dean. Uh, the, the, the experiment called the Gottenspiel experiment, which is a respected um, ESP experiment. 
And that's written in the supernormal book in the chapter in telepathy. The whole chapter is really about someone named Gail. So this this I'm that Gail. So <laughs> in that what's 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 there's a piece missing in that book that we didn't know about till a year and a half later. But what he had us do was I was in the Faraday cage, an electromagnetically shielded room in the lower part of the uh, research department at the Institute of Noetic Sciences. I used to volunteer work there and I, I also worked there for a while when Dean was there. And upstairs, Dean would be sitting at his computer and he took that contractor guy, Tom, and had him at the computer. Tom had never done an experiment in his life or anything psychic, but he wanted to test him because of the strange experiences I was having, knowing all these things about someone who I just met. He was he's the colorblind guy. He's the colorblind guy. Okay. So we go in, Tom's there, he looks at the picture. And for me, when I do remote viewing, I see the thing within the first 30 seconds, the first minute I'm done. After that, I, ha I make up stories and things just come that and really have nothing to do with it. But I'm sort of like, I'm like bored. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to still be looking at this thing. I'm supposed to describe the target. So once he saw that I said, I described the Great Pyramid, which is what he was looking at. And consequently, I was going to be going to about a month from that time. He um, started looking at all these things in Dean's office. And Dean was busy working on the computer, thinking he's doing the right thing, which is staying focused on the pyramid. But instead, he's looking at these other things. Well, we find out sometime later, because he doesn't say anything, Dean looks over and says, oh, no, no, just look at the target. Don't be looking around the room. Well, we ended up as a team being filmed by um, the NHK. They came from Japan and they did a three hour paranormal documentary. They went and filmed people all around the world and they came and they came to film. They came to talk to me and they said they weren't going to film me, but that ended up changing. Ended up being on the 60 Minutes of Japan and this oh, particular, wow. we, were, we were flown up, all paid for by the NHK. They flew Tom and his wife and me and David up to Seattle to the uh, Washington University where they did, um, it was only the second run of this experiment um, with Dr. Leanna Standish, who's a neural, they study the brain. Neurobiologist. And neuroscientist. neuroscientist. And uh, they asked if we would do telepathy while they filmed my brain in a fMRI because the fMRI shows the brain functioning, where the MRI just like takes a picture. Oh, none, none of my other, none, none of my friends' spouses has their brain like this. I'm so proud. <laughs> well, that, that photograph they took of my brain at the time, and um, we had to do this. We did this telepathy together, and we showed a change of blood flow in the brain that occurred when. I would be looking at a checkerboard with a red light in the middle and it does something to the brain when you're in the machine, in the fMRI. And Tom would be in another room looking at a computer screen and we would be sending back and forth a telepathic message, just like a connection. And so it did show a change of blood flow in the brain. And it's, it's an interesting experiment that needed funding for them to go and you know, you have to do so many more trials, more trials to, to right. write up about it. Kind of, Gail is, Gail is kind of strong with the force or whatever, so they don't, sometimes I think that they don't need as many trials if she's in the experiment. So 
I can't remember why I wanted to tell you that story now, though. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. And that, that book is um, called Super, is it Supernormal? Supernormal. Uh, Science, <laughs> Yoga, and the Evidence for Extraordinary Psychic Abilities by Dean Radin. Ah, here it is. Can yes. you see? There we go. Yes, we can. Yes. Okay. I was actually trying to get a picture of it. Oh. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> better. Thank you. <laughs> I like that better. So Got you, that? that? Yep. And that's a, a well-worn copy, I see. Well, I have my copy that he signed that says to the real, to the Gale in this book. <laughs> in case anybody thought I was making it up, you know? <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. So, oh, like that is the end of the story. So when they came to film us here, before we went up to Washington, this is where they decided after they met Tom and I together, they asked Tom, well, have you ever had psychic things happen or where did this, what, what was this experience with you and Gail? So he told them about the experiment. He said, and so I stopped looking at the pyramid photo and I was looking around Dean's office and she would describe each thing I was looking at. <laughs> but... Dean didn't know that's what he was doing. Dean never even heard this story for a year and a half. I never knew the story because he was a quiet guy who's never been in an experiment. He's walking away from the pyramid, and there the whole time he said, "But Gail did describe everything I looked at." You know, from the steel room again, seen through the through his eyes. Right, and we didn't find out till there's a camera on him, and these Japanese people are filming this. And that's what the wow. and, and and the erased cars and people. You know, you get a sense of what the challenges are of people trying to make structured scientific experiments about these things and sometimes sure. missing the entire thing. Well, I, I just feel like I want to do, I want to, my job when I do this is I want to give them as the best uh, result as I possibly can. So my intention is always to do the best I can when I'm with them. But I don't know really what will ever happen. I've just been very fortunate that on camera, when when it was a spontaneous thing, I didn't know I was going to be filmed for this third eye spies doing a spontaneous remote location viewing. All of a sudden, they just said, "Would you do this?" You know, mm -hmm. and I seem to work fine on these spontaneous things. The missing person thing was very unplanned, completely unplanned, and she felt an obligation because there's a guy waiting in his therapist's office, wondering where his mother is. Do you want me to share that the missing person story? Sure. Oh, sure. And when you say Third Eye Spies, is that the Third Eye Spies documentary that's it's on, Amazon. on Amazon presently? This is the Third Eye Spy documentary. Yes. Oops, have... Documentary by Gus. Oops. Yeah, I don't know that's great great. Documentary. Yeah. It really is. Yes. And that's also the icon for um, an app that I'll show you after I tell you this. Okay. Why don't we show the, show them the app first, or sure. tell you the missing persons? I'll show the app briefly. Let's show the app briefly. So there's the, so uh, Russell, the same icon. This is the launching of, of of Russell's second ESP training app. I believe you both have seen this app before. Yeah, yes. we have them both. So so this might be hard to read, but uh, it's a little bit like those precognitive remote viewing experiments where. Um, yeah, it's like, is there water? You know, right. you're yes. exactly. are, are there repeating elements? So, um, so, so I might say yes. And is there water? You mentioned water, I'll say yes. And now we're looking at four photos, and it's definitely one of those photos. It might not be either of the of the, of, of the properties that I said, but if I choose the photo, and I'm going to happen to choose the one with water, uh. 
but really it's but really it's, it's a great pyramid. How funny is that? <laughs> I have a blast with this application. Like I really like it. Although I get frustrated yeah. sometimes, you know, it'll say are there mountains, and I'll say yes, and then you get to the four pictures, and it's all deserts and there's no mountains. And then like, I do the oh, thing. Which one is it? Like Gail, my God, that's like synchronicity right there. So I, I, I think any of your viewers should know that right now, if they go to the app store, they can download this for free right now and they can enjoy. It's called Stargate ESP Trainer. Stargate. Stargate, Stargate ESP Trainer. And it's Russell Targ's app. And it was created by my husband, David Levitt, for Russell Targ, for people to be able to develop and exercise and train themselves with remote viewing. And these are, there's 207 beautiful targets in there. Awesome. I, I can tell you and test to uh, how cool that app is. And I've been playing with it for a while. I had some inside information and I had a beta version mm -hmm. and <laughs> I've been playing with it now yes. very much enjoy it. And I know it's in the Apple store. Is it also in uh, the Google play store? It's not an uh, Android app at this point anyway. Okay. 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 Yeah, but very cool. Yes. So, uh, so yeah. So, so I've so we've known Russell for twenty two years now, and uh, it's uh, and that was the second app he did for him because he did his first one, the ESP trainer, where you guess where the photo is behind the four pretty colors. Which one do you think the photo is? But that one was more of a uh, JD line style thing where you're picking the four from four colors. Rather than this one's more focused on the pictures, and really, it goes. I'm not sure anywhere. how that'll show up on there, yeah, but there's good. You can yep. see that, and yeah. that ESP trainer also you can download. They're Very both, popular app. Both in Russell Targ's app store's uh, location. So yeah. I was going to tell you about um, missing persons, unless we want to talk more about the app. We can, although I, before we go too far, I do want to just come back on. Just uh, one quick thing. You mentioned an experiment with a Faraday cage. Mm -hmm. And a Faraday cage, as I understand, it cuts off a lot of the electromagnetic energy and radio waves and things that could be um, Every, crossing you, right? It just kind of yes. takes all of that away. Uh, was the purpose of that to see if the being in the Faraday cage uh, affected your uh, telepathy ability? Right. Or I'm not sure what you were doing in that experiment, that but experiment it sounded very about? interesting to me. I mean, you could say it was eliminating the possibility of a back channel of some kind that it was making sure. sure it was honest but it was also you know ruling out um any kind of radio communication or anything trying to figure out what it was uh and or whether she had any ability to read tom's mind uh given that she was so isolated and you did though right did it make a difference being in the faraday cage right. or did it not matter I do that because that's where the scientists re require me to be sitting. <laughs> right. But like Chris asked. Did yeah, in their data, difference? did it find that it made a difference being in the in Faraday the cage. cage or? They, they don't. They, picture ability at all. They don't control for that. Yeah, there isn't. It's just like, let's, let's always have her in the cage. Oh, okay. it, doesn't, it doesn't look like you're going. At first, when I first saw it, I thought, am I going to be claustrophobic in here? They closed this door, and it looks like a giant walk-in refrigerator. If you ever seen one of those with a big metal door? Sure, yeah. But they had the whole inside with curtains and a lamp and a table, so you feel like you're in a nice little living room inside there. She also loved the, the, the magnetic resonance MRI machine. Oh, that was a very oh. amazing I, experience. I'd like, to see that. I'd like to do that. How did that affect you? 
the fMRI? Yes. Yes. I made it sounds kind of strange, but it was almost like a spiritual experience in there. And I didn't want to come out, which I could not believe because I have claustrophobia and I haven't been able to take a regular MRI. But somehow when there's a film crew and a bunch of <laughs> Japanese men, I was in there for 40 minutes and I didn't know why, because it was really supposed to be half that time. And I didn't know. And all I kept thinking was like, I don't ever want to get out of this. I, it put me into such, I don't know if it was the sound or the light things, but I was in such a meditative, like, really calm and spacious place. Mm -hmm. And um, when I came out, I, the woman, the, the scientist kissed me when I came out because I had given them such good data. That's the thing. As, as, uh, and I said to her, I don't know what to tell you. I said, but I had the strangest experience in there that I didn't even want to come out. And I said, I thought I would be terrified. I said, but I loved it in there. And she said, I've had the exact same experience, she said, and very few people have. She said, sometimes I just go in there when I'm on my own, she said. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> wow. And, and I don't know if it has to do with the magnets. Yeah, or or the magnetism or the noise or the... Something, but I was never able to take a regular MRI after that when I needed one for medical reasons. I went completely hysterical. I couldn't go in there. <laughs> wow. But I think I think That's you're right. It's about, there's some collaborative thing where where the fact that we were I mean we were literally cheering outside. I don't think you could even hear most of it, but they're 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 buzzing around with all these scientists saying, "Look how good this beta is." And Gail is, is is pleasing them in these very intimate ways. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <Speaking of> that, <laughs> we also glossed over one other little aspect you guys touched on, and that was when you first mentioned you were having sex, and you said, I knew you, hey, you expect some some weird stuff to happen." <laughs> and what was some of the weird things that happened when you when you guys connected in that way, in a physical way, and intimate? Well, I think I might start blushing. I don't know. I'm not sure if I'm ready to go into that one. I'm very open about everything. but <laughs> I, I'll, I'll say that um, uh, uh, the experience together is something beyond pleasure. It's it's pleasure plus. <laughs> Are we talking about an out of body experience? Yes, the body experience. Yeah, but... like an alternate state of where you speak in tongues. Oh, I, I can confirm that. <laughs> in fact, I started to really be curious because a lot of times it sounded like different languages. I didn't and, know what to do, but I really wanted to record her. And uh, <laughs> our friend Stanley Krippner, who's an amazing. Uh, uh, an amazing human being and has studied so many different things on these aspects. He knew yeah, the, the term for it, and I can't pronounce it correctly, but it was glossolalia. Glossolalia or something. It's like something meaning beyond pleasure. Well, and I know I'm talking about the vocalization part. Right, that's yes. what he means. Yes. Well, that's very anyway, so, I've heard of that. No. So vocalizations, and you weren't sure what they, they meant, but boy, they sure no. sound but they sound like another language. They do. They, wow. they do. They sound like. Look into that. Yeah. <laughs> Well-known parapsychologist in his own right. Well, I don't know, and I think uh, you were I his books as well, right? I wasn't actually referring to that when I meant that we. But it was just that I meant when we became intimate, 
by having sex together, that was when we were going to have even more psychic connections. Right. Yes. No, no. Right, right. Um, so yeah. she brought the blonde in the hot tub into our lives. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Just materialized. You guys look great. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you for talking on that. that yeah, a little laugh. Definitely an outside question. Um, uh, I wonder, are well, you getting in a, in a, in terms of, it's, it's not, it's not seeing through their eyes always. It's not perceiving stuff that even they didn't know, like Esther and her mom, but it's a field that gets created so that when a therapist that she had spoken to that knew about her powers, uh, read her manuscript, asks, uh, calls her up out of the blue, and says, I have a patient who wants to know where his mother is. She does a wonderful piece on this in, in, in Medium, uh, uh, Gailhausen at Medium.com, where she's uh, missing persons, where she, she says, it's, she asks the son, do you think your mother's alive? And he, and he answers, I'll let her tell the story. But the point is, she says, it's like I, he knew the answer, and it was like I had to clean his glasses. So I'm going to share the story, but I'm not going to say any of the names because I always like to protect the persons. Sure. And actually some of the people have passed away that I'm talking about. In it. But it was a famous... I'm getting calls, so I'm okay. David's checking out here. <laughs> love talking to you. Great to meet you. Oh, Thank, you, you David. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. Thank you. I had um, been introduced to this very famous therapist in um, Berkeley who happened to also be the therapist for Ram Das, And I had an interesting story with that also when they asked me to do something psychic with that, but that's another story. And he read my manuscript, A Small Medium at Large. This was some years ago. I have, still haven't published it yet, but working on that. And he said, I might call you someday. And I didn't know what he meant about this, but... Six months after he read my book, I get this phone call and I'm in the kitchen. I'm washing dishes and cleaning up. The phone rings. I pick up the phone and he says to me, uh, I, have a, I have a client here and his mother's been missing for eight days. And we're wondering if you can tell us where she is. I had never done a missing person, anything in my life. So I had no idea whether I could do this. You know, I was like, but he decided from reading my book, of course I could do this. So I said to him, well, let me talk to the, to, to, I said, I don't know if I can do anything like this. I said, just let me talk to your, to your client. So the client, the son of the, of the missing person gets on the phone and I say, he said, my mother's been missing. He said, I just visited her in Colorado. We had Christmas together. I came back home. I received a check for $700 from her, which was a lot of money and I couldn't figure out why. And I was calling to thank her and I've never been able to reach her and it's eight days now. And uh, we wanna know if you happen to know where she is. So the first thing I say to him is, did she have cancer? Was she very sick? Was there any problems? He said, no, she's perfectly fine. She was healthy as can be. She's a hiker, a backpacker. She just moved to Colorado to be with her new boyfriend. So I said, well, you're her son. I said, you're closer to her than anybody. What's your gut feeling? How do you feel right now about your mom? Mm -hmm. And he said, I think that she's, I don't think that she's with me anymore. I think that she might be gone. And I said, well, you have to trust your gut feelings. Let me talk to the therapist, the psychiatrist. 
So the psychiatrist gets on the phone and I say, oh my God, I didn't know what to do. Once he got on the phone, I said, I got all these images. I said, I'm not gonna say your mother's dead. I don't know if his mother's really dead. I said, but I saw that this big giant boulder. I said, and I saw this car parked next to the boulder and a, and a woman slumped over the steering wheel. I said, I didn't see any blood or fear or danger. I said, that's the dead person sitting in the car. I said, but I'm not gonna tell this to someone. First of all, it's none of my business to be able to tell them what's happening and whether she's dead or alive. He needs to discover this on his own. I said, so I'll tell you, but I'm not willing to take that responsibility to tell this young 24 year old man such information. Maybe it's not right. Maybe she's fine somewhere, I don't know. So they speak to the Colorado police and they tell him my information. Whether my information helped them or not, I don't know that it necessarily helped them, but they happened to find a car on the side of the road a few hours later, exactly like I had described by a boulder with a woman hunched over the steering wheel. And by the way, these are not pleasant. I'd prefer no. looking for the Great Pyramid. This is not, you know. Right, right. I can imagine. Blessing and the curse. It's, it's energetically for me, it's very heavy. And so wow. they call me back. He calls me back with that, the psychiatrist, not the son. And the psychiatrist says, the police have contacted me, the Colorado police. They want me to ask you another question. They want to know if you see foul play because they think there's a suspicion maybe the boyfriend or something happened and that's why she's missing. Do you think there's foul play? And normally when I do anything, I'm not one of these types who says, oh, I'm psychic and I know everything and I'm going to tell you, la, la, la. I always feel like it's a gift and whenever it comes, it's always a surprise to me, even after, you know, 50 years worth of this. So I said, you know, I was so convinced and in my, I mean, it was like an instant feeling. I said, there is no foul play here whatsoever. I said, because when I came upon the scene, my experience was great sadness, but there was not violence. There wasn't fear. There wasn't any of those kind of feelings. I said, I can, it was the first time I felt like where I could really say, I'm telling you, you know, <laughs> there is no foul play. That's an important and he went back and told the police. And then um, he called me eight hours later after that. And when they had gone back to her home again, where they had found nothing had been disturbed, her purse was still on the table, everything was still there, they found a suicide note. Oh. And she wrote that when she had been here in Berkeley and enjoying her time here, the reason she had left was she was diagnosed with an incurable cancer that couldn't even be treated with radiation or chemo, it was so far gone. And you said that, you questioned that too, it came to you. She had been sick, yeah. And he didn't know she was sick. So it wasn't something I pulled from his mind. And so she didn't want the family to be, they didn't have a lot of money, et cetera. She didn't want the family to be put through torture. That's why she sent that $700 to him before she, she, she wanted to give him whatever gift of money she could give him. And she just wanted to, not you know, I, I don't judge when a person decides to take their life because they're going to come to an end and just suffer and be in misery. So, you know, 
I have no judgment on that. This was what she needed to do for herself. So um, I've never done a missing person before. <laughs> well, that's a really good story. Yes. And that brings up some questions too. So do you think you're connecting with like a, an energy? And again, I know we, we nobody knows all these answers or anything, but just what's your instinct? Do you feel like you're connecting with her spirit or some kind of residual energy about what happened? I think that it's this combination of something about con consciousness where it's sort of, I call it the invisible. Yes. And the invisible and the consciousness so far from what I feel and experienced, like I'm not sure, like I'm not 100% about reincarnation. I always felt I believed in reincarnation, but I don't think of it like, the minute you die, all of a sudden you jump into another body. It's mm -hmm. something more about this consciousness that lives on mm -hmm. because I keep feeling through my shamanic experiences and things, I'm tapping into something that's invisible, but very real, just like our everyday life is real. And it's, it's something about the energetic fields that are left with these things. And I think especially when there's been trauma, like you're taking your life or, you know, any of these kinds of things, those energies have a bigger, stronger signal than I have had some happy ones, too. But a lot of these are more of this type of nature. This uh, crisis of fear, um, a tragedy, things like that kind of put up a bigger, I think I used the word bat signal earlier like from Batman, <laughs> you know, then something uh, just, you know, I'm having a really good day. Maybe it doesn't make the a bigger current out there in, in the consciousness waves. So that that's very interesting and you know relates to a lot of different subjects as well. You know, uh, things that are paranormal. And uh, yesterday I mentioned um, something about the contact modalities, which is uh, this gentleman as an experiencer, meaning a non-human intelligence experiencer, Ray Hernandez, had started compiling. And this these were things like psych, psi phenomena, uh, NDEs channeling um, hallucinogenic close encounters, um, telepathy, remote viewing, all kind of being part of the same kind of wheel. And it, this was ex explained to him by a non-human intelligence, is how he tells that story, uh, where he had this kind of alien conversation and telepathy telepathically received this information and it was like spokes on a wheel. And all these things were, were related and what was found out is that people that have had those experiences uh, seem to have other experiences. The other modalities seem to increase. So if somebody, say, felt that they were abducted by an alien, after that, they may start experiencing clairvoyance or out-of-body experiences and things like that. Mm -hmm. Do you think that there's a tie-in? And have you had any non-human intelligence communications, things that were not human at all? Well... I only once, first of all, I was exposed to the idea or the thought that there could even be aliens or spaceships back in 1962 when I was six years old and 1963. And we, le we left New York to live in a vegan commune, the first vegan commune with the president of the Vegan Society. And we would have different guests that came there from all over the world to speak. And they would be about health and, you know, 
you, there were no doctors. We lived on raw fruits and vegetables. As kids, this is how we were being raised. Uh, if you were sick, you would put on a fast on water. I never had an aspirin. I did, you know, there was no medical interference whatsoever. Wow. So we had this particular one couple that came and my parents ended up becoming close with them and stayed friends with them for many, many years. Uh, what was his name? Haley, his last name was Haley. Uh, Don or, I can't remember his first name. Dottie was her name. And when we went to their home, cause they lived, we went to visit them. He showed us pictures that, that as a six, six or seven I was, it was something I never forgot, was listening to him stories of his story, giving his talk at this you know, commune we lived in about how he had been abducted and gone off on his ship into a, <laughs> you know, which I, you know, I, I didn't say no or yes at the time, I was only seven, but the photograph he showed me of this, you know, flying sorcery kind of thing, mm -hmm. I never forgot seeing that image or hearing his story of having said that. So I think when you're young, just like when you learn, um, you're, if, you, if you hear, if you have people that work for you or families that have uh, other languages that they speak when you're a child, you're able to adapt to other languages much easier than if you grow up and you uh, just start to decide, oh, I want to talk Spanish now. Well, I think these little kind of plantings of these, I saw phenomenal healing, I saw healing without medical interventions. I saw um, things like this man with the flying saucer picture. Well, I think that dropped little seeds in myself, including my grandmother who always spoke to the dead. So I had a very nice um, eclectic thing of people doing things like that that I never shunned or said, oh, that's not, you know, I wasn't that kind of kid. I was interested. And, um, some point in my years, it might have been in my late 20s or something, I decided I wanted to venture into that alien thing. And I had one experience and it freaked me out. So I said, I'm never doing this ever again. <laughs> what was the experience like for you? It was very strange. <laughs> I'm not somebody who watches sci-fi. So I don't know where these images came into my head. But I had said, you know, what is this with the alien thing? Is it really real? And I was kind of finding this, trying to find out. And I've had very good information often when I ask questions and I would go to sleep and have a dream, I would get information that I would need for some things. Mm -hmm. Like my sister would say, what's the, what am I going to have? What's the birth? And I would tell her what the child would be with the exact weight that she was born, Jeez. you know, two months before she gave birth. Wow. So I was always doing that, that kind of thing. So I mentioned, so I was like, what is with this alien thing? Is this really real or is it one of these hocus pocus or whatever? And I go to sleep and I have this bizarre, sexual, strange experience where, I guess this is the right show to say it on, but you know, no, I'm just saying it. I'm not saying I believe all, I'm not, I'm not saying anything, I'm just sharing what happened. Sure, it's okay. Sure. And I felt like I was, lifted out of my body and taken away from my bedroom. In fact, in the house I'm living in for the last 43 years, so it would be right upstairs from where we're talking right now. And I'm taken to this place and there's these characters, or I guess you would say alien, but I, that wasn't really my terminologies in my mind, 
these alien types that ended up looking like ones that I see that people pose all the time, where it's sort of a, a shorter body with an oval shaped head and these the big eyes and they're yep. gray. With and I'm thinking eyes, to myself yep. later when I saw those years later, I said, wait a minute, that's what I saw when I had that crazy dream well, thing. That. Isn't that interesting? Because you hadn't uh, seen yeah. that imagery before, but yet there it was. Yet there it was. And then later, years later, when I saw it, I said, how did they see my my imagery, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> dream similar things around the world. It so, gives validation to those kind of entities and those experiences that people have because non people would never come across this stuff, see the same things a lot of times over and over. I think uh, small grays was like number three in yeah. a lot of the surveys Trillions. of what the non-human yeah. entities look like. Oh, so, well, so, and then they were doing these strange, like, sexual things to my body, like proby kind of things. I mean, it's, <laughs> and it was very strange and weird. And then all of a sudden, somehow, I found myself back in my bed again. And just the whole thing freaked me out. And I said, I'm never going to be looking into the alien things again. And I never have. <laughs> I was just going to ask if you would like remote, um, remote viewed like an orb or something. But I guess you're totally against that now. <laughs> I just, you know, there's plenty of things for me to do. That's not, I just have no, I'd rather look for a missing person, which is heavy enough. Yeah. Than, bothering with that just anyway so the experience would you call it a a positive or negative or neutral mm. experience it was it was a mixture of it didn't feel like a dream and i couldn't tell the difference between the dream and reality and what was real and that was a bit frightening okay so it was a negative experience too it, it didn't make me want to keep looking into alien things. <laughs> well, yeah. Okay. Okay. Get it. Had enough of that with the probe, and thank yeah, you very much. <laughs> kind of like that one over there, but uh, we're, we're going we're to leave that go. Okay. Exactly. So I, that's, and I, I have, I was at an international remote viewing conference, and I was taking Russell because he doesn't drive, and so I was driving him over to meet... Um, there was going to be a big reunion at um, uh, Hal Putoff's house. He was having a barbecue. Yeah. We one and all, so everybody was there. And we had to give someone a ride. And I don't remember what her name was, but she was the big woman on UFOs. And she had gone and interviewed the man who was dying, who had been in the Area 51 or something, I think. I'm not good with all the names and facts and that just that I had her in my car for 30 minutes while I was driving, listening to all of her things. And I was like, uh Oh, <laughs> I'm not thing again, you know, <laughs> no. No, we've so, everything on the show where yeah. authority, the Jack of all trades, authority of none, I guess. Right. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Our own par paranormal type data that we present, Obviously. but we're just interested in everything. This whole spectrum. Of phenomena because I do think it is tied. somehow related and tied together. And mm. There is something to but that. Just we're all kind of the question you said about do you think that, like, say, that man who felt that he came back with this circular wheel of all this information and that it came from a non human? I think that uh, things, for me, my personal feeling is things affect me. Um, like if I go to ancient places, 
Like I laid inside the tomb inside of the Great Pyramid. There was the King's Tomb thing. That I would do that. It was, his, it was like a bathtub looking thing. And there was nobody up there but us and two people. So I, I know you're not supposed to do it, but I had to lay inside that. And my son did it also after me, but the rest of my family didn't. But when I laid in there, the feeling, the intensity of that sound just came out of me. And I can't sing and I'm not, you know, I can't do an own perfectly or any of this kind of stuff. But in that moment, the energy inside the middle of the Great Pyramid and having that stone, you know, my whole body was just surrounded. It was like a tub, so it was a small thing. Right? Mm -hmm. And to have that all around and it, above your head so that all the, it, it's places like these, it's places that I've gone to around the world that when I'm in strong, powerful places, in fact, I was with Russell in Merida, Mexico, and I had an intense um, Kundalini experience, which I've had quite a few of them. And I, it's had taken me my lifetime to understand them because they come spontaneously out of nowhere. And they started in my 20s. And I've had about eight or nine of them in these, you know, 66 now. When they happen, I've found some of the things now that occur is that it's when I've been in what they call energetically powerful places. Mm -hmm. So I'm saying I do feel that you do get affected or opened up more. These were not, I'm not saying it for me, it was an alien type thing where another earth, an unearthly thing gave me information, mm -hmm. but going into places of power does something that opens up my psyche more or that I hear or know more more things after being in those kind of situations. When I traveled alone all over Asia, I went to cooking school in Hong Kong for a few weeks. And after I finished cooking school, I ended up traveling for another four weeks, not knowing where I was gonna go each time. In those days, you could have an airplane ticket that you could just keep going until you got back home. You could just go to the next country or whatever. Yeah. And I lost a, a friend while I was there. And I knew he was more than a friend. He was the first love of my life that I'd gone to Woodstock with. That was the boy up the street who I grew up sitting at the bus stop, waiting for the bus thing, drooling over him. But he was five years older than me and I'm a young little kid, you know? Uh -huh. <laughs> but when we got older, we got closer in age, you know, that happens. So he became my first boyfriend in love and we had come to California together and he was dodging the draft and the FBI and the Vietnam War. and. He was, I was in, in Hong Kong and I was in vegetable carving school where they teach you how they make pagodas out of giant carrots. And it's a two year, it's a two year, you know, you have to study for two years before you can carve this, but they're just showing you, you're gonna carve a few flowers and you know, a couple of small little things. And while I was in there, I started, my throat started closing up and I couldn't breathe. And I turned to my, we, there were six or seven of us in the class and our teacher from the junior college here where we live took us on this cooking, cooking tour because she was from China and her family lived there. And so we had a very intimate, you know, cooking tour of, of Hong Kong and we got to go with her into mainland China. So she was, you know, someone we could get advice from. And when we went to different temples, she taught us how to pray properly in the temples and these temples are really old places. When I talk about energy, it's intense energy in these places. And so 
I said to her, I have to leave the classroom right now. My friend just died. He's choking. He can't breathe. And I know he's, he, he, he's dying right now. So she said, here, go take, get, get in a cab, go to the temples. So I hired this cab guy, which would take me all around, all around to temple to temple. And I prayed in every temple for the soul and the passing of my dear loving friend. Uh. And I called back because in those days, there's no cell phones, right? This is in the mid eight, like eight, 1984 or something. Mm -hmm. And I call up my, my husband and I say, Ricky died, Ricky died. And he said, you know, his mother would call you because he's in San Francisco. You know, we're only an hour away, right? He would call, you would get the call. You know, he's not dead, he's, he's fine. And we didn't even have message machines in those days. Then I call up my friend Ray, who was his closest friend. He says, no, no, Ricky's fine. We haven't heard anything. We're sure he's fine. So I continue on my four weeks of travel through Asia. And I have one psychic experience after another. Every day, I'm inundated. And I just wake up from dreams and I see the clothing people are going to wear. Like we were going down the Li River in the middle of mainland China, where all we've been served is frog legs and unusual foods. And I have a dream about, oh, it's barbecue chicken, real regular barbecue chicken. <laughs> and I'm thinking I'm having this dream because I'm craving some American food or whatever. <laughs> we get down to the Li River, we get on the boat, they start drumming and sailing down the river, and they bring us each a platter of barbecue chicken. And I am beyond besides. You can imagine. You know, wow. So what I'm trying to say here is this experience of being connected to someone who's in death, even though I have no knowledge that he's actually dead, but I'm experiencing it minute by minute. And every day I'm having amazing psychic things that happen. I get home four weeks later and my husband picks me up at the airport and he turns to me like this and he hands me a letter. And I open up the letter and it's from Ricky's mother. And she had written about the love we had together and that he had passed away on the day that I had said, and that she had been trying to reach me, but that when she called at home here, there was no answer because my husband was at work. I was in mainland China and he had no phone machines. So she wrote the letter and of course it, I had a, a ton more of emotion. I'd been crying for the whole six weeks when I, since I'd had the dream there. And then I said, you know, I wonder how he actually died because she didn't write about that. She just wrote about his going and, you know, her being there. And I was taking courses then from uh, Ram Das and from Stephen and Andrea Levine. And they were all these courses on how to care, the spiritual care of the living and dying. Mm -hmm. And I'm taking this one class on death that's being taught by this man who unfortunately had a terrible accident. He was a uh, mountain climbing teacher in Yosemite and he was sleeping in a field and they hadn't seen him and he was run over. So he oh, was left as a para paraplegic, he, a beautiful man, six foot two or something. And he's giving his talk and he's talking about the things. And all of a sudden I just start crying in the back of the room. And my friend I went with said, why are you crying? And I said, I think that man was with Ricky when he died. 
And she said, go up and ask him. I said, how can you ask somebody a question like that? Yeah. I'm sitting in the back here. Oh, were you with my friend when he died? <laughs> right. right. So she kept encouraging me. She said, Gail, when you have a feeling, you have to follow through on this. So I went up to him and I said, I'm, I know this is strange, but I, 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 there was a friend I, de I dearly loved, Ricky, and I was wondering if you knew him. And he said to me, not only was that an incredible uh, experience for me to be with him on his death and with his death, he said, but I wrote an eight page paper about it on dying of AIDS because back in 1984, there was not a lot of study going on. It was just beginning. Yes. And he was working for Shanti, which was an organization to go and sit and help people who were dying of AIDS. And so he wrote this paper and it was sent around the world to all different other places for people to read about the dying AIDS experience. And when he gave me the paper and I came home and read it, and I'm reading page word for word, and then it comes up to him saying, he'd had enough, he'd suffered long enough, this was the time he was taking off the respirator. So he was on a respirator and he wanted to die of his own breaths, of what was left that he could breathe without it. And he taught me back then, I'm sorry if I start to cry, but I get very emotional about this. Just start to cry, but I'm gonna start to cry. <laughs> he taught me that true connection knows no distance and that you can be 8,000 miles away from somebody and still be there with them while they're dying and assist them and go with them and say goodbye. And you don't have to be sitting next to them holding their hand. And it was a great teaching. And I'm very, you know, all these lessons are teachings. And my, my, my whole feeling about talking with you or anyone else is that I'm hoping that anything I share can either open up another person to either share or to, for them to heal in some way about some experience they may have had. Because that's really, you know, all these psychic things and all these things they're studying. This is nothing new here. They were doing these things as Russell held up a book in a talk we just had about the year 800 when they were writing about remote viewing, really. Right, right. That's true. And, it's true. It's true. And it's that we are all one and we are all connected. Exactly. And uh, these lessons teach us these things. I mean, another person could say, oh, it's all made up, but. I know what I experienced and I know how real that was. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it takes the experience to bring about the belief, you know, um, certainly I, we've had experiences ourselves that just made us go, wow, you know, I thought maybe that could happen. But when it, when it really occurred, you say, wow, look at that. You know, yeah. that, that really is real. Look at what happened there. There's no rational, um, you know, left brain, it, it, reason for that to have actually occurred. It's all on, on the right brain. I'm like, well, well, this is like that spoon bending. Mm. You know, I kept hearing about Yuri Geller and the spoon bending thing and everybody's with the spoon bending. And I'm like, what do you mean? Like, I, I didn't even understand the concept. Do you just bend the spoon or did you hold the spoon? It just does it itself. I, I mean, the, the whole thing didn't make any sense. But I always feel like, you know, maybe it's real. You don't know until you check it out. So I never believe it, and I never don't believe it. I would like to see it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You haven't seen it yet? Oh, <laughs> I could have brought you my fork down. But oh, that's <laughs> right. We spoke about that last night. Oh, yes. Right. So we were at, uh, I think it was IRVA. I think it was the International Remote Viewing Association Conference. Mm -hmm. 
And this gentleman who I believe has passed on now, Jack Hoke, Huck, H-O-E-U-C-K, something like that. He was like the man of spoon bending. And so he would do these spoon bending parties. So when you'd go to the conference, they'd say later on, you can go down into the, you know, and you're in a fancy ballroom, you know, a big room that's in a hotel of all places. And I'm thinking of things like this, you know, like in Shamanism, you're out in nature or this and that, you don't think of it as in being in a ballroom in a building or something. <laughs> and the whole floor, they have tablecloths on the floor and it's covered with hundreds of pieces of silverware. <laughs> and the silverware is all on the floor. And Jack is there and he said, now walk around the room, look at the piles of silverware. And when you feel the piece of silverware calls to you, take that piece of silverware with you. That's the one that you'll use for bending. So I think there was a 150 people there and they're all walking around. And I first, I pick a spoon and we go and you sit back in the seat and he's giving your instruction. And before he starts with the instruction, there's a little old lady sitting behind me, which now I'm a little old lady, but back then it was a little old lady. <laughs> and I say to her, well, have you done this spoon bending before or how, how come you're here? And she says, oh, I'm a retired school teacher. And actually I'm here because one of my students, I think it was Paul Smith, but I'm not sure. One of my students is here speaking at the conference and I just wanted to come and see what he's doing. So I decided to come down to the spoon bending. And she's sitting like this. She says, and I've never heard about any of these things or any of this, I'm just a school teacher. And as I turn around and I'm looking at her in the chair and we have not begun the, the, the information yet of what we're supposed to do, she's mm. holding the, thought, the spoon like this and it just starts to bend over in half like that. <laughs> She's just this guest looking to see what her, her, her grown student is doing with nothing to do with the paranormal. She's holding a spoon that's bending in half and I'm freaking out. <laughs> so I have a spoon that hasn't done anything. You know, I haven't even begun. And I start yelling for Jack and I'm going like this, Jack, Jack, something's happening here. <laughs> so he comes over, he sees the spoon and he praises and says, you know, this is amazing. She's done an amazing job but we haven't begun yet. So he starts off and he says, hold your piece of silverware and you, everybody, 150 people are screaming at the silverware to bend. So it's all room, everyone goes, bend, bend, bend. <laughs> and you're holding this thing. So I'm having no response with this spoon. I'm feeling like a failure. <laughs> I know it can happen because it happened with the woman behind me. Right. So I go back to the pile of silverware and I say, I need a new piece of silverware. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm looking at the silverware and I say, is there anyone else here who could call to me? And a fork jumps out at me. Pick this fork. So I pick the fork and I go back and I do what he says when I'm sitting in the chair and I'm focusing intent and I start rubbing the, the, the part of the metal on the fork and I've got it like this and I'm rubbing it like this. I'm sorry, I don't, it's upstairs, otherwise I'd have it for you. And okay. all of a sudden, like he says, there's this moment and the best way I could describe it is that the metal turned into fluid. Like it became like liquid like all the molecules or something. And I'm not a scientist person, but it was like molecules were jumping around. And I knew that was the moment. 
And in that moment, I just took the fork and I twirled it around and around like this. And then I touched each tongue and it just melted down like that. Wow. wow. If you want to see the fork, there's a story about it called Spoon and Fork Bending. And there's a big picture of it on the Medium site, which I think you have down here at themedium.com. Yeah. So anyone who wants to see the fork store, you can see it. It's right there. And I brought it, of course, I had to have my scientists you know, inspect it. I had to have Jack inspect it to make sure it wasn't like a fake or somehow it was a yeah. thing. And I remember Russell, who's, you know, very, has uh, uh, sight issues, hard, of, hard to see. And I remember him looking at it like this. He said, yep, that's it. <laughs> he said, you can't do that, twirl it around twice like that. And since then, I've tried to like see if you could bend it back out of that shape. Mm -hmm. Never could I bend it out back. It would out. probably break. Wow! Right? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of the thing with the uh, the spoon and fork bending. They say you know if you were to actually take these things and bend them, and I think it was uh, Joe Gallenberger we yes. were talking to. He also was telling us about. Uh, he showed us a bent fork. Uh, he talked about somebody in a class. Um, tying a pencil into a knot, a wooden pencil. And it's impossible, right? So that something molecularly would have to happen to So how does that to the pencil, to the utensil to become like a liquid, like you mentioned, to be able to tie it. So how knot. does that happen? How do you think that happens? Our brain I don't know. <laughs> energy, frequency. I mean, this is like quantum. I have no idea except that I, I can tell you it truly felt like liquid. Wow. And you had to feel that moment. Like, I don't know if I would have said, oh, it feels like liquid and just sit there and not touch it, whether it would have solidified again quickly. You know, I'm not sure. Uh, but I did come home and lay out silverware. And for a little while, I had my children, you know, <laughs> you know we were all yelling. And then, it was, you know, we kind of go through these phases. My, my children put up with all kinds of things I bring home to do. Until you, they get to a point where they they draw the line and they say, "Now you've gone too far, Ma." <laughs> <laughs> I brought home an Australian medicine woman who was teaching how traveling the world, teaching how to make power tools from animal skins and animal parts. Okay. And I invited her to stay with us for ten days. And she, my daughter, came home from school and she was on our kitchen table. I mean, it was covered in plastic and everything, but she was at our kitchen table, fully skinning a raccoon, and the eyes were popping out just as my daughter walked in. Oh, oh my God. God. you've drawn the line. <laughs> you've gone too far. Things that are seen in this household that yeah. you know, <laughs> the neighbors definitely are not up to. Um, bringing her up, an Australian medicine woman, that mm. we also talked a little bit last time when we were talking about shamanism. Mm. And did yeah. you want to tell us how you got involved with shamanism and how that came about? Well, I'll have I have to say two. I think there was a planted seed and then the fact that I was involved in, you know, all these things connect and they all end up going back either to the Institute of Noetic Sciences or somebody Dean or Russell introduced me to and then something else happens. Sure. So two things happened. Russell took me to um, Ingo Swans to meet him in New York and which started up a nice friendship and I visited him a few more times, but I would write and call him and stuff. And he was a very nice, he was, he's an intense man, but we had a very nice thing over Gerber daisies. I knew exactly, I went to bring him a, an arrangement of flowers and I was sitting there and I'm saying, I have to know which is his flower. 
and it was at one of those New York flower corner places because I don't like to arrive at someone's house without bringing something for them. So I said, I'm going to bring him these Gerber daisies. And I walk in and he looks at me and he says, you brought me my favorite flower. And so now when I have my Gerber daisies that I plant outside, I call them Ingo. <laughs> That's awesome. And those are actually my favorite flowers as well. Oh, wow. So <laughs> we're all connected. Yes, so we are. So that little visit where we met, as we were leaving, he, he, he looked me in the eyes, Ingo, and he said, you know what your problem is, Gail. Uh, you happen to be a shaman, but you just don't know how to be a shaman or act like a shaman, but you're a shaman. And I walked out and I thought, I never thought of myself as a shaman, you know? <laughs> and it was sort of, that was whatever. So then I'm working at the Institute of Noetic Sciences and I'm signing people up for registration for something or I'm doing something for Dean. And we get this phone call from this woman who was the foremost knowledgeable woman on Asian shamanism in America, possibly the world. She was a German woman that was a Berkeley University professor and her, you know, she spoke about shamanism. Well, she happened to be coming to this conference and when she called up, she said, my, my problem is with a heavy accent, I don't have a way to get up there to the Institute. And I said, I'll be happy to go down and pick you up. So I go down and I pick up Ruth Inga Hines. And Ruth Inga Hines is a tough lady. And when I go to get her, before I leave, I see Marilyn Schlitz and I tell Marilyn, I'm going to pick this lady up to give her a ride so she can come to the conference. And Marilyn turns to me and those words have never forgot. I've never forgotten these either. And she says, when you meet Ruth Inga Hines, she will change your life forever. And sure enough, I could say Marilyn was right 100% down the way because what that woman did is when she came, Dean was doing an experiment where you hold an object of a person and then you tell them about the person Mm -hmm. psychometry and he said to me why don't you and this Ruth do this or she wanted to do an experiment with me something like this how it came about after I picked her up so we go to do this I don't know this woman I've just given her a ride right, right. <laughs> I'm holding her ring in my hand right she's in the other thing you know we're looking at each other on video screen so I can see her reactions or whatever I'm holding this ring, and the next thing I know, I'm in, I forget what country it is, some, some country in Europe. I'm in some country in Europe, and I'm talking to her about all this. I forget what it was all about, but I say all this stuff, and later she tells me, yes, I was talking to Father Tiso or whatever, and yes, it was Argentina or wherever he was from. And she said, and that's, and then she said, and you were trying to get ahead of me all the time. I could feel you. And she was the kind of woman who never smiled. So I was sending her a message. You know, why don't you smile? How about a smile, right? And you could see telepathically in the in the in the screen. She's going like this, like trying to. <laughs> so when we get out, she's blown away at this connection we have, and how I'm telling her who she just was talking to and what it was about. So she says to me, I have a conference, uh, the, the um, what's it, what was it called? The shaman, we, we, it kind of ended up being cut down to the shamanism conference, but it had a long lengthy title before this. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. Sure. And she said, and I would like, you don't have to pay any money. She said, I would like to invite you as my guest to come to this shamanism conference. So she invites me to this conference that I didn't even know existed, but it's been going, went on like, it went on for 30 something years. So this was not a small time thing. By the time I was going, it was the 22nd year or whatever ever of it. And this single woman would organize, run, register every single thing without any help into her 80s. She did this. And she would have shamans from all over the world that would come here. Because how many people, like now it's becoming more popular, but back then, how many people had a shaman conference? Where you could have shamans from Laos, shamans from Vietnam, shamans from Siberia, shamans from Ecuador, all in one room. And each one sharing their amazing drums or clothing or song. or So that's where I got exposed to shamanism. So it's 2005, and she says to me, and by then I'd actually become her, I I never was a teacher's pet. I was always being yelled at, but this was the only time I'd been the teacher's pet because I had the right one, you know what I mean? (laughs) When in math, I was in the, you know, being sent to the dean, you know? (laughs) In this, I was the teacher's pet. And so she only allowed everyone to speak in her conference for 20 minutes. And at 20 minutes, she cut you off. She didn't care what you were saying or what was going on. I was allowed to speak for 40 minutes. Wow. <laughs> that was when I discovered that she liked me, you know, because <laughs> she encouraged me to get up and talk. And I had never spoken out. And she said that I had things to tell people and that I needed to get up there. And I was so nervous to speak or do any of this. And after she got me doing that, I love giving talks. It's one of my joyous, and I feel very comfortable talking to 100 people. That's great. So she says, we have these Mongolian shamans that have arrived. And I said, yes. And she said, but this is what I'm saying. She's demanding. She's not talking in a calm voice like this. She's a commanding German woman that's very tough. And she was, a, you know, she was on the stage in Dresden. And she was an amazing lady. Yeah. Yeah. So she says, you go upstairs to the shamans. You tell them what time they have to be on stage here to give their presentation. You help them unpack their luggage, get them some food, get them settled in. We don't have a translator. Uh, <laughs> oh my gosh. So I said to her, how can communicate to Mongolians? <laughs> and she says to me, she goes, what? Don't, you will do it. You'll, <laughs> you will do it. <laughs> so I go upstairs to the... This is in like a little nun, a place where nuns go and do study and stuff. So there's these little, very austere rooms and each person gets a little room with just a sink and a bed. And that's where you sleep during the three days of the shaman conference. So you can have nighttime fires and singing and amazing things happen in this place. So I go there and here's this huge man named Zorks Batar. He's hundreds of pounds. He's covered in all shamanic clothing. And he's got this big suitcase there. And I'm first I'm trying to tell them that, you know, you got to do a presentation. And I don't know how to say presentation. I'm trying to say this. I'm trying to give them food. I'm doing my best. There's six of them. <laughs> so I try to do the, un, un, you know, let's get your clothes put away because then we'll be ready to go to the conference. La, la, la. I open up his suitcase. And it was a Samsonite that had been covered in leather with paintings of horses and all Mongolian scenes all over on the outside. It was beautiful. That's fancy. And I opened it up, and there is not one stitch of clothing in there. Oh, wow. 
Well, there's so many dead animals. It's a suitcase full of power. <laughs> so I first I'm thinking, how did he get through customs? Right. That's what I was just thinking. And he takes out this very special thing that's all written in Mongolian and it's all in gold. And it's the certifications that he's permitted to have all these things that he is a shaman, la 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 la. Okay. So he shows me that, and he takes out, you know, a bird, a full birds, and uh, his hat is a is a turtle, the head of a whole complete of a turtle with the things all coming out. Some of the tools are made from. I'm not sure how this got in here, but they're made from human parts of the body. Oh, wow. Because Mongolian shamanism is very, very old. It was considered the religion of the people until they got taken over by other countries and shamanism had to be hidden underground. So it's only in this last 25 years, I think, that they're able to be shamans out and open and practicing in Mongolia. So some of the tools they have are like his drum, which I didn't notice until some three or four visits later because we've... You know, we've been friends since 2005. Unfortunately, he's not also has passed away. And I had him do, he did experiments at the Institute of Noetic Sciences. I brought him in to do the chocolate experiment where we prayed to chocolate. He prayed to chocolate to see whether when people ate the chocolate who didn't know which one was prayed to, whether their day would be a much better day than the people who ate the chocolate that wasn't prayed to. But he was part of that experiment. Anyway, so he says to me at the end, I, I invite them all like I always do. I always invite everybody to come to my house. You're more than welcome to come. I have guests, and that's why my kids have seen everything and everybody. So we came here with all the six Mongolians. We had no translator, but we were able to communicate. And he is not my first experience being in other cultures where I can somehow communicate. So he says, uh, we'd like to invite you to Mongolia sometime. So the next year I get a call that in 2006, it's the 800 year celebration of the Mongolian empire. Would I like to come to Mongolia and travel with them and be there for the celebration? So I did, and I have many shamanic experiences that happened there. But I went again in 2010 or 2011 and I brought my whole my family two of my children, one had to stay home to work. And I met this other Mongolian shamans there. And I invited them if they ever came to the United States to come and visit. Well, sure enough, a month later, I have all these shamans here. <laughs> Mongolian shamans who've never been, not, I, don't, I think this was her first trip to the United States, but these are the things I'm never 100% sure. And uh, her name is Zagda, and she's initiated 62 or 63 Mongolian persons into shamanism. So she's staying at my house. She's gonna be leaving to go to Chicago to see some other families. There's a lot of Mongolians in Chicago. And she comes back, she wakes up and she says, I've changed my trip. I mean, I had to have some, you know, you have to become a shaman, she said. I saw so many spirits around you and I've been told you're a shaman of healing. You're a white shaman, get yourself ready. <laughs> I don't know what this means. So what do I do? You know, <laughs> I'm calling Mongolians I know that live that have stayed here that are translators, but they're not here. I'm calling them on the phone. I'm saying, could you ask her what I'm supposed to do? You know. <laughs> 
Where do well, we begin? And I think we'll probably end with this story because I think our time is getting close, yes. And I don't know what's going to happen, but I find out when a film crew comes a week after this initiation, and by the way, it was a very amazing experience, we had to prepare all of these things and it's really done by, she had a book that said, it's this many centimeters. You had to make, they're like snakes and you make them with sheepskin that is twirled very tightly. It's a very difficult task. And things would happen like I found a box of sheepskin sitting in front of an art door, an arts and crafts place that was for free. I mean, who has a thing of fresh clean sheepskin waiting for you? I mean, it was just- Yeah, some synchronicities there. So these things would, right, would keep happening. And we got the things that she wanted and we're working till the wee hours of the morning, hand sewing and stitching and shoving these things in. She measures them the next morning and says, ah, it's no good, we gotta redo all of them. They're a centimeter off. <laughs> so there's a lot of background behind what she's doing, even though I can't tell you what it is. There's a lot of information about what she's doing. And I'll tell you two more parts of the story. She tells David, my husband, that it's very important for him to go bring home, we need dried horse shit. Oh, come on. <laughs> we must have horse shit. And I live on 15 acres with a giant hundreds and hundreds of year old redwood tree. And she said, this is where the ceremony will be. Invite all your family and friends. Of course, we had, you know, four days notice. So I couldn't, you know, I didn't know who was gonna even come to such a thing, right? We didn't even set up a camera. We should have filmed this. It was six days of preparation, about seven hours of initiation. And she tells David, we need, the, we need this manure, we need this manure. So he's so proud. He knew a place down the road where neighbors have horses, but he's a black man and he's imagining somebody's gonna either shoot him or he's gonna get arrested because he's going over the fence stealing the horse manure. Okay. So he has his phone going up so saying, I'm just here, you know. <laughs> grab some pearls. <laughs> he's so proud of the job. He comes back to, uh, to Zagda. She's in the kitchen here, and he's got this proud look on his face, and he's got this little handful, like a shovel's worth of manure. <laughs> and she looks at him and she says, what? This isn't enough, man. What? <laughs> but we knew she was not sad, but she was very dissatisfied. And she tells him, get in the car. <laughs> she knows where there's manure. So they get in the car and we had taken her for a walk and spotted underneath somebody's lovely rose bushes, how they had all the nice dried horse manure. <laughs> I need to go back to these neighbors someday to tell them we're the ones who took it. <laughs> <laughs> so he gathers up garbage bags full of manure, not one little patty. And then they're then used in the ceremony because in Mongolia, that's what they use for fuel in their wood stoves is dried patties, you know, from, from animals. Sure, yep. So, so she's got them burning all around the circle of the redwood tree in abalone shells. That's why she needed so much of this stuff. But the look on David's face when he thought he was so proud and he really hadn't done the thing. Then she looks to me and she says, oh, I need this very important something, right? Holy shit, excuse me. I go upstairs 
and I bring down, and I have a bags full of different things that shamans have given me through my life here. Mm -hmm. And I bring her this little bundle of herbs and she goes like this. She could not believe I had this rare herb from Siberia that had been given to me that's very important in this initiation and she didn't have any of it. Wow. And I gave that to her with her not even asking me and me not even knowing which bag of herb I should. <laughs> so when these film crew came two weeks later, some young students from UCSF, they were Mongolians and they did a, I have some a little bit of YouTube of it. They did a film called Mongolian Shamanism for their class. They came and interviewed us, and that's when I found out what went on during the ceremony because I finally had an interpreter, and this was after a week later after we'd done everything. Mm -hmm. So he asked me, what was it like to do a ceremony with someone that you couldn't speak the language? And I said, I, don't, I would just know these things. I would just sort of do the thing. And I said, but how did she know what was going on for me? So he'd ask her in Mongolia, and then I found out she said it was she said it was amazing she said she would just think and gail would just pop in her brain and there would be the answer <laughs> and so she said that the way we communicated was that i would be popping in her brain so it was a very powerful experience and i can attest that my son said when he saw me he knew i had been in an altered state of consciousness because i had to drum sing, chant, and play the jaw harp, which I happen to be very good at for some reason, according to the Mongolians. And um, it was a hundred degrees out and I cannot take the heat. And I'm wearing all this heavy clothing and animal furs and all of this stuff. And I have no idea that it's hot out. I have no idea that there's all these people here. And when I was in Mongolia, she had whipped the people that we were with, including myself, as part of the shamanistic, uh, in any shamanic healings or cleansing, there's often something done to, whether it's loud sound, it's, it's things to remove the negative energy. So whipping was one of her methods. And after having been whipped once, I really didn't want to be whipped again, even though I was gently whipped. <laughs> <laughs> and my children were sleeping when I said, kids, you missed me being whipped yesterday. You could have had a joyous fun, you know, watching your mom get whipped. I said to her, when yeah. you were doing this, oh, I said, whatever you have to do is I don't want to do the whipping. Well, I didn't know I traded the whipping in for scolding. <laughs> and before they, all your clothing is being like blessed, everything before you become the shaman, she has to cleanse your body, soul, aura, whatever things you want to say of the, these things before you can become this shaman. So here's my mother, who's, you know, like 80 at the time, my niece and her two little boys, and some other different people that one or two who I didn't even know. There's about 12 people sitting there watching this thing go on. And she says, you stand right here. And for six hours, she had these rocks that had been at my house that were put into a bucket and had to be in a fire. They were in a fire for six hours so that the rocks had been burned for that many hours by, by someone who had used to have been a therapist of mine. And so he was in charge of the rocks. 
So they put all the rocks in and she, I'm standing there. And the next thing I know, they rip all my clothes off and I'm completely naked. Which oh my God. would have been a beautiful sight. But in my, you know, older years, this is not a pretty sight. Nobody wants to see this. <laughs> and she has me standing squat like this over this pot of filled with these big heavy rocks and she's pouring vodka on top of the steaming rocks. Oh my God. And the when the vodka and the waters hit the, the, the burning rocks. Yeah. Sure. Steam that comes up is so hot that it burns you like, and I'm naked. So it's going up my crotch and my thighs. And I let out a scream that my mother didn't know what. So I didn't realize that when I, I don't know, at least with whipping, I probably would have had my clothes on, I, you know. <laughs> so for the rest of that evening, every now and then she would just come up to me and pull my dress up <laughs> and <laughs> look at my thighs and she pat them. She oh, it's okay. Oh, good, good, good. <laughs> they were bright red, needless to say. Imagine. Uh, and it wasn't, it was just that I, you don't know that, I mean, it's a surprising thing when you don't know that's going to happen to you. <laughs> Sure. And then after that, I was allowed to be dressed in all the shamanic clothing. And it was truly an altered state of mind experience. And um, and I'm incredibly grateful that she decided to do that for me. And and it, it was an honor. I'm her first American person that she ever initiated into shamanism. And she's a very well-known, famous shaman in Mongolia. And so when you leave, when part of the, one of the things of the preparation, and again, my wonderful husband was part of this, I can't do art or any of these things. You have to draw a cloth, she gives you this thing, and she says, you must draw children on each one. And you have to draw a child on each thing. And David does the drawing and she looks and she says, what? Well, they have to have hats and shoes and this and that, you know, so complete detailed drawings. And he made a beautiful thing. And it was hung up in the uh, redwood tree as high as it could be. And she takes that back with her. And every shaman that she has initiated, she has this cloth hanging in her home of the different things that were drawn. Oh, so his work and that ceremony is now back in Mongolia. No, oh, that's really neat. And fascinating yes i'm gonna I'm, I'm going to have them on my podcast because we're going to do a zoom from here to mongolia and they will be my guests but i will have a interpreter <laughs> we'll be looking for that yeah we would I like imagine to that'll be pretty much anywhere where you can get podcasts it's going to be called uh, yeah. at large with yeah Heisen. with gail heisen and it's going to launch sometime in august probably towards the end of august Excellent. And I know we talked about a few of the interviews you might already have prepared for that. Mm -hmm. So we're very excited. I will yeah, absolutely add that to my playlist. You're absolutely fascinating, Gail. Yeah, right. Compliments out here. Uh, yeah, we have a lot of comments. Saying you would be the hood at a party. <laughs> <laughs> I love I, this woman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How do you see those comments? Yeah, they're they're there. We get a good portion of them. Some of them don't make it through our software. It just depends. So but, I can uh, read them after different um, Facebook lives out there. So yeah. Yes, you could. Oh, great. Oh, and that was a question for me too. Is 
I had friends that wanted to listen to this and I really didn't know how to tell them to do it. And I was wondering how would I tell them to do that? I guess I'll, after I'll send you a link. Okay. Yeah. yeah. You can just give them the link and it'll, it'll play. Wonderful. So that's great. We really appreciate yes, this. Thank I appreciate you it coming so on. much. The shaman topic is a, a topic that I think we could go uh, way more. more in depth and, and I find fascinating and, um, maybe you can, we can do something again in the future and have you back on to tell us more about shamanism because um, I'm sure that's a, of interest to a lot of our listeners out there too. Well, I would love to. I, you're my first uh, uh, Michelle show. <laughs> we broke the chair. That's <laughs> it. And I, and, I, and I was sort of like, well, I don't know who these people are. La, la, la. I feel like I've known you for a long time. It feels like a wonderful connection. It and felt so awesome. wonderful it, it to meet does. you last night and today. And your husband, you guys are just yeah. You guys wonderful. are great. You guys are great, great together. together. Yeah, we. And please tell him we appreciate him coming on as well. And the app is uh, ESP Trainer uh, from yeah. from him, and as well as uh, is it Stargate Trainer? I have it, but I, yes, Stargate I Trainer. I think it's called Stargate Trainer. ESP Trainer. Check those out. ESP Trainer and Stargate. What's this? Stargate ESP. Stargate ESP. Right. It has that I. I that I. Well, I can't figure this out, but. Died and we my, we have my a phone actually died. I was going to hold it up and show. <laughs> yeah. my it, of course they did. <laughs> I can't touch electronics neither can he. So. <laughs> well, I hope you guys have had as much fun as I had. I really had a great time. Had a blast great. with you, Gail. Thank you so much. We really well, appreciate it. I'll um, be watching your shows now because now that I've met you, I'm really going to look forward to listening to other people with you. Thank great. you. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much, Gail. We appreciate it. And the website is also uh, com. And again, look for her podcast coming out in August, The Small Medium at Large with Gail Hyson. So we'll be listening. Thank you so much, Gail. Thanks, Thank Gail. You. Meeting you again. Have Bye. A Bye. And uh, that, that was awesome. Yeah. I had such a good time. Uh, she was totally fascinating, totally funny. <laughs> they both are. They both are really and, um Yeah. We would love to talk to her more about shamanism. Um I was going to ask Anne Marie, have you seen my shirt? I don't know if you can really a little, see it. Christopher little, uh, made a shirt for me. It has a, a swear on it, but yeah, I thought it would come out backwards in the camera, but no, there it yeah, is. I just wanted to show Anne because she's like, I want to see a picture. That's one of it. our favorite spots. Our anniversary spot is yeah. the Spider Gate Cemetery. So I had that made up for for the lovely Kristen. Yes, thank you. But uh, that's all we have for this week. Uh, thank you so much. Um, we I'll will be you. seeing you guys next week, and our guest is Leslie Michelle Mitchell Clark. Leslie Clark will be joining us, so that'll be great. Yes, it will. And uh, we'll see you then. Thanks again. Be Bye -bye. there, be square. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? 
In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.